Zombie Dragon. Fastest pirate vessel in the galaxy. I know it's been a long time, guys. And so we're going to talk about that space elephant in the room right off the bat. We're going to handle that right away. I know I... Uh, Tried to relaunch the show back in February, tried to get it going again, tried to have a co-host, all that stuff. And I may still have guests and uh, maybe eventually a co-host come on eventually. But for right now, it's still just me right here in the communications room of the Orbital Zombie Dragon, transmitting to you from low Earth orbit. So why since February? Well, I guess there's a lot of reasons. One of the big ones, I guess, uh, and without going into too many gory details, kind of had a, a family tragedy last year. And I guess I thought I was ready to, you know, get back into it. And I think that maybe I wasn't. I still had a lot of, like, personal issues and things to to work through the, the loss of a family member last year and uh, get myself straight. But now I think I'm... You know, I think I'm back. Boomzilla's back. <laughs> your your faithful captain, Richard Boomzilla Pippin, is back to talk to you about sci-fi, horror, and fantasy, uh, particularly from a story writing aspect. And I'll try to give you all writing tips also. I try to analyze these movies while I, I kind of do give a review, like I've said before, of the, the show is what I think of them. I also try to break apart some of the story writing, why it works, why it doesn't work, that sort of thing. So, uh, now that we got the, the hiatus covered, <laughs> I'm back, hopefully regularly again, maybe a third time's a charm. Uh, as some of you may know, I had an original 42 episodes, and I had a long hiatus, and I tried in February. And like I said, personal issues, it just didn't work out. So maybe the third launch is the charm. I have decided, though, I thought about it long and hard about do I take down those two episodes in February and start over again like I did before from episode one? And I thought about it a lot last night. And what I finally decided was that, no, I'm going to leave them up. And you're going to see that big gap in the history as kind of a reminder to myself to not uh, lose faith, not to uh, let that long of a gap go by again. <laughs> so if nothing else, it'll just be a reminder to myself. So as usual, I'll start with a few announcements. Uh, I do. I have been doing Facebook Live fairly regularly. I'm going to try and do it even more. Uh, you can find me on there. I'm not sure if y'all can follow my personal page without friending me. I don't know. But I've been doing it mostly on my personal page. You can find me, Richard Boomzilla Pippin. And if you can follow me there, follow me. But uh, if not, eventually I'll be switching it over to the Orbital Zombie Dragon page. And what I really want to do there is kind of a nightly broadcast to uh, uh, 
share with you my writing process. I guess that's the whole point of it. I'm going to talk about where I am in the writing process, what I'm doing, and we'll see from there. I guess I'll talk about other things. I try to, I guess like I do on the show here, I try to keep kind of a positive thing going with that. Once again, I'm trying to do this thing where I do less notes, uh, where I don't even need a tablet screen. I'll just kind of have my phone with my notes for the episode. But less notes to me feels more natural, like I'm just having a conversation with you guys. Uh, Another thing I want to talk about before I get into the show contents today is this kind of two things. I've seen this alarming trend in both sci-fi and horror. But I'm going to talk about the sci-fi one first. And the horror one I'll discuss when we're discussing the horror section of the show. There's this alarming trend in sci-fi where people think that the creators of the sci-fi owe them something. You know, the hardcore fans, they like the creators of the sci-fi owe them a particular ending or a way the character gets developed, the way the character goes, the character art goes. Or even some people start injecting their personal politics into it. They want the show to represent their political leanings, whatever they're they're a fan of. And they want to just try and boycott these shows or bash them before they even come out. So I'm here to tell you that creators don't owe you anything. <laughs> As a creator myself, you, you owe the creators. Without the creators, there'd be no sci-fi to be fans of, and they don't really owe you anything. They don't owe the story to go a particular way. They follow their own creative flow, and you can, you know, take it or leave it, you know, be fans of it or not. But to boycott something based just based on, oh, they didn't go the direction I wanted to see, then that's fine. Just don't go see it. Don't try to organize a, a failure, you know, try and crash the whole thing. That's just stupid to me. I, like I said, the creators don't owe you anything. If anything, we owe the creators. I'm speaking as a fan also, not just a creator. You know, we, we've seen all the, the, the conflicts over the years, the fans against George Lucas <laughs> and 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 all the I mean, the, the recent Star Wars films have really been uh, fallen victim to this mentality of the creators owing you a particular outcome. And I just don't think that's true. What else I want to talk about today? OK, um, I guess we'll just jump right into the, the rest of the content here in my sci fi section today. I went to do some movie marathoning this weekend, and surprisingly enough, this time around, I had no uh, problems with anybody at the theater. <laughs> I know I discussed that on the, the two episodes back in February, the things people are doing in the theater that's very disruptive to everyone else watching the movie. But I didn't have that this time. The, the staff, the people, they were all great this time. Nobody whipped out their giant galaxy note cell phone in the middle of the theater blinding me nobody had a phone conversation the whole time nobody texted the whole time and uh nobody i don't know just it was a it was a cool experience yesterday and i went to go see two movies in a row and see the nun and the predator so for the sci-fi section today i'm going to talk about the predator this uh, one that just came out this weekend 2018 film Starring, uh, starring uh, Boyd Halbrook as Quinn McKenna. Uh, you might know him from a couple other genre films like Logan and The Host. Got Olivia Munn. Booty alert there. Olivia Munn's a very uh, attractive actress. 
she plays this Dr. Casey Brackett, I think it was. Yeah, Dr. Brackett in the, in the show. And if you've kept up with her in the genre, you've probably seen her in X-Men Apocalypse as Psylocke. And, of course, you got the, the little kid in this thing, although I, I kind of put him last in this list. <laughs> because one of the kids, a main part of the story, or, or at least a major part of the story, he, I don't know, I, I felt like he was a, not maybe not a main character, just a major character. But anyway, it's Jacob Tremblay playing Rory McKinney, uh, McKenna Quinn's son. Uh, there's a lot of other faces you can recognize in this film. A lot of people you've seen before. Just give me give you a quick list. Uh, Jake Busey, uh, Thomas Jane, Alfie Allen. You, you know Alfie Allen from Game of Thrones. <laughs> Reek. <laughs> Poor Reek. And uh, he's, he's, he's not much better in this one. He plays one of the, uh, the, the loony soldiers. <laughs> but... All that aside there, uh, the loony soldiers redeemed themselves in this film. Anyway, sort of the setup of the film is sort of like before. The opening is very much like a lot of the other Predators movies where you see, you know, it starts in space. You see the Predator ship coming in. But in this case, it's a little different because it's two Predator ships and one is chasing the other. One is following the other. And that comes into play later in the story. Why is there two? But there's this whole space combat scene, and then this one finally crashes crashes to Earth right in the middle of this military operation. So it may seem kind of similar to the to the first film in that respect, that it involves some military specialists, the, the Quinn McKenna character, on a mission. And this thing crashes, basically crashes right into his mission. He... Uh, he manages to uh, survive the incident, grabs a couple of the uh, the Predator's pieces of equipment, the, the, the face mask and uh, the little the little device that makes them, uh, that cloaks them, that makes them invisible, as, long as, the, as well as the wrist gauntlet thing that you see in the Predator lore. So anyway, he knows that he has stumbled upon something big and he mails part of it back to himself home tries to uh tries to sneak it off back home as evidence because nobody's ever going to believe him right well in steps kind of the villain i know you think the predator's the villain but there's another villain in here uh this guy that's part of this division they never really give him a name but part of this division that keeps track of these uh this contact with uh alien life and they're aware of these predators and the leader of this one he's kind of the main villain throughout the movie he does believe him uh, he just doesn't want this to get out, so they proceed to railroad him to make him look like he, you know, went crazy, <laughs> post-traumatic stress or whatever, and has these delusions about aliens, and basically in the process of putting him away forever and, and quelling uh, this from spreading. Uh, that's how the, the, the Dr. Uh, Brackett gets involved, uh, Olivia Munn's character, and they actually contact her because she's on the list of biologist to call if they ever get a hold of a, a alien sample to analyze it. In this case, they actually have a predator that's been injured and they've sedated it. They have it in captivity, I guess, and they want her there to study it. And of course, things go wrong. <laughs> Predator's very tough, very resilient, and he breaks out and he's after his gear. 
and also you you see the the other the other predator ship that was given chase that predator shows up and they're after this same piece of gear now how the little kid gets involved this is all in the beginning i'm not really spoiling anything for y'all. this is all the setup in the beginning i'm not trying to spoil anything for you guys but anyway the the stuff that he mailed ends up going to his house instead of his post office box because he hasn't paid his bill <laughs> pay your bills and he goes it goes to his son, the uh, Rory McKinney, K- McKenna. I can't want to say McKinney. I don't know why. I'm thinking of something else. McKenna. So it goes to Rory McKenna. It was his young son. I think they said he was like mm, nine. Or I'm not sure. I may be fuzzy on that one. But anyway, he's got Asperger's uh, syndrome. If you're not. Well, if you're not familiar with that, look it up. I'm not getting into psychology stuff today. (laughs) Well, I am, but not that. That's a complicated thing. If you don't know about it, you probably should go read up on it. It's pretty interesting. But anyway, this this kid with Asperger's gets a hold of it, and they kind of set this whole thing up. And this is what I'm going to want to get to in in this show. And I'm going to talk about it from a review aspect, too. But I want to talk about the story writing aspect. There's an important part in the beginning, in a movie, in a novel, in a TV show, whatever. What you don't want is any uh, wasted scenes that don't really mean anything to the story. And while I was watching this, there's a scene in the beginning uh, before Rory gets the the Predator mask and the little operating system and all that. Where he's in school, uh, some kids playing a prank, pull the fire alarm, and they're they're in the middle of this 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 chess. Uh, class or whatever, a bunch of kids playing chess and some kids pull the fire alarm and they're, you know, having fun watching everybody run at the building, panicking and all. Well, the Rory, the kid with Asperger's, the loud sound uh, causes him to get very agitated. He's covering his ears. He's kind of, you know, non-responsive at this point. And they find him in the classroom and they go in there to make fun of him, tease him, whatever. They have a nickname for him, Asperger or something like that. <laughs> some stupid like that. Like kids would come up with. And eventually they realize they're not really getting a reaction out of him because he's so freaked out by the the uh, sound of the alarm. So they get bored with teasing him and they take off. Before they do, they knock all the chess pieces in the room on the floor. All the people that left their game in the middle of the game, they just like just sweep them off the chess table, clatter to the floor all over the place. And eventually the alarm goes off and Rory gets up. And there, this is why this scene is important. It may look like a totally important scene. Like, why am I watching this school bullying scene in the middle of this Predator movie? This is a setup to tell you something about Rory's character. So it's not a wasted scene. I knew it when I was, I recognized it while I was watching. I'm like, oh, they're defining uh, something about this character in this scene that's going to be important later on. And of course it is. But he gets up when the alarm goes off and he looks around, he sees the scattered chess pieces and he gets up and sees them and sees all the boards. And before anybody comes back to the classroom, he hurries up and picks them all up off the floor and puts them back in the exact same position they were before. So when people come back, they'll be able to pick up their game where they left off. So it's like four different uh, chess sets. And he sets them all back up perfectly because he could remember it. He could, you know, uh, spatially visualize it. And put them all back into place and nobody would know anybody even came in there and knocked it all down. So what they're showing, even though he has Asperger's, 
he is a uh, kind of a savant at uh, figuring things out, puzzling things through, remembering things, uh, coding, visual, you know, sp- spatial visualization. He's good at all this, like eerily so. And this becomes important later on because it turns out this kid can actually, when he gets a hold of the predator gear, he can actually figure some of it out. Stuff that scientists in this group, you know, with the villain guy, have not been able to figure out. Scientists, really super smart guys, have been puzzled by it for, you know, a decade or more. And Rory can just go in there and kind of go through it and figure it out. So, <laughs> uh, so that's that's what I was getting to. That That's an important part of the story. They set it up early on with the chess tables so that later on when he starts figuring out this alien technology you don't go no no way you already understand this about this character so anyway as far as that i'd say this movie had uh some pretty decent story writing i'd say above average story writing i know a lot of people have been bashing on it uh but honestly and people are bashing on it saying like oh it just this is uh, like spitting in the face of their original. And like those people should go back and watch their original and realize there was, there was not much story to that one at all. Okay. That was like a macho fest, you know, Arnold and Carl Weathers uh, arm wrestling. <laughs> the the other guy, uh, you know, drawing a machete across his chest before he fights the predator. Cause somehow cutting a big slash across your chest will do something for that fight. <laughs> and then of course, Jesse Ventura, I ain't got time to bleed, you know, go back and watch that and compare, really compare it to this one. Just stop trying to just bash on anything new out of some nostalgia. And you'll see, this is actually much better story writing. It's not great story writing, but it's much better story writing than the original one. So I will definitely say there's a lot more to it, a lot more layers to it. That being said, there is some stuff in it that's a little... Uh, I found the villain. The villain I talked about that uh, from the agency or whatever, I find that his character was a little inconsistent, especially towards the end. And then he almost kind of becomes irrelevant almost immediately at the end. And I almost can't even remember what really happened to him. I know something happened to him at the end, but it was like almost... It was like glossed over so fast that I don't have much of a recollection of it. And everything was, I'd, I'd say it's above average sci-fi flick. I wouldn't give it a 10. I would give it about a 6.6, 6.64. If you want to get exact with it, 6.643. How about that? So that's what the captain rules. It's above average. It's worth going to see at the theater. Uh, the thing I'll I'll say negative about it is, like I said, the villain's kind of inconsistency towards the end. And also, the ending was kind of yeah, cheesy. And I don't know if that was a, a purposely cheesy tip of the hat back towards the late 80s, early 90s films. But uh, I don't want to give it away. I want you to enjoy the cheese yourself. Say all those seas of cheese. As Primus would say, <laughs> and and just appreciate it. I kind of groaned at the end, though. To be honest, it was a, it was a groaner ending. 
<laughs> I want to say the line right now, but I'm not. You got to go see it. It's worth going to see it at the theater. Don't don't believe the haters. So anyway, that's my final verdict on that one. Uh, above average sci-fi story writing, much more layers than the original. Even though it's not, it's not still not deep. Don't go looking for deep. You're not going to find that here. So <laughs> speaking of that, uh, move on to horror. I went to see the nun even though that one got horrible reviews also. That's part of being a podcaster of this type. You really got to go see everything, even the bad films, so you can talk about the bad and why they're bad. So we'll get into it. Again, this just came out, I think, I don't think it came out this weekend, maybe the weekend before. It's a 2018 film, though, possibly a week old. I forget the release date. Uh, Starring, I'm going to butcher this name, I know this actor, but I'm, I don't. I, I should have went and watched a video of how he pronounces his own name. I'm guessing Demian Bashir. Uh, <laughs> I hope I didn't murder that name. <laughs> but anyway, he plays Father Burke, this uh, this priest, and I get the idea. He's kind of a high ranking priest, even though he's uh, fallen into disfavor. I guess, and gets assigned these kind of crap tasks. <laughs> He's kind of vocal in the meeting with some of the higher-ups in the church, and you can tell they're kind of like, oh, we got to put up with this guy's shenanigans again. They only invited him back because they needed him for this. But anyway, you might recognize him. I don't I don't know of anything genre that he's in. I just remember him from Weeds. If you ever watch the Showtime show Weeds, there was a couple seasons where Nancy met this uh, Mexican drug lord named Esteban. I think she ended up marrying him for a while and even having a kid with him. And uh, that show was just a whole other, God, I could do a whole show about weeds. <laughs> but it's not genre, so we're not going to talk about it. But he played Esteban. That's the only thing I know him from. He's a good actor. I'm just probably murdering the hell out of his name. You also have uh, Tessa Formiga. Uh, Vera Formiga's much younger sister, which I think is pretty cool that she's in this. She plays Sister Irene. Uh, if you're trying to remember who Tessa Formiga is, if you watch American Horror Story, she is in a whole bunch of seasons of American Horror Story. Uh, I'm not sure how many. I know at least the first three or four she was in, I think. But Tessa Formiga, of course, uh, is... <laughs> <laughs> like I said before, is Vera Formiga's younger sister. And Vera Formiga, Formiga is a big part of the Conjuring series, which The Nun is a spinoff of. Vera Formiga plays Lorraine, Lorraine Warren, uh, one part of the couple, the Ed and Lorraine Warren, that have the doll, the Annabelle doll, and all that. So kind of ties in. And you do see Vera Formiga a little bit in this film as well. Uh, where kind of like you've seen them before in The Conjuring, where they're doing a presentation at some university about some case that they handled that's somehow related to this main story. I don't want to mess that up for y'all either. Uh, you're also going to see in this film Bonnie Ahrens as the nun, the, the one you see in all the pictures, the posters and all that, the scary-looking demonic nun. That is Bonnie Ahrens. Bonnie Ahrens, if you don't know, has been in a ton of horror films, just tons and tons of horror films. And if you go look her up on IMDb right now and take a look at how she looks normally without makeup, without 
you know, the costuming, all that stuff, you will see why she gets picked for a lot of these horror films. I, I would not I would I would not say she's unattractive. I'd say she has a very unusual and exotic face that they don't have to do a lot of makeup work on to make it look uh, unusual or weird or scary or whatever. That nose you see on the nun, that's not prosthetic. <laughs> they didn't have to do no prosthetics. They probably just had to put some creepy makeup around the eyes and they were done. So she's done, she's done a lot of stuff like this. Go look her up on IMDb. And a lot of her parts, coincidentally enough, this one's a non-speaking part. There's a lot of screeching and screaming. That's probably not even her actual voice, probably dubbed in later. But no speaking. But Bonnie Aarons does a ton of non-speaking, creepy-ass parts. And the one that really sticks out in my mind is Mulholland Drive. I'm not sure if Mulholland Drive, I guess you could say Mulholland Drive is kind of genre. It's kind of a scary flick, weird David Lynch piece with a lot of scary stuff in it. You got, you know, creepy Robert Blake in it. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, Mulholland, I'm probably mixing up my David Lynch movies anyway. Mulholland Drive in the beginning, there's this guy that's met his psychiatrist at a restaurant because he keeps having this recurring nightmare about this restaurant. And he wakes up terrified. He's having these night terrors. And in the dream, basically, he's at the restaurant. And for some reason, he feels some sort of evil presence behind the restaurant. He wants to go check it out. And when he gets back there, it's a devil or a demon back there. And he sees it and he wakes up and he's terrified. He's sweating, screaming, all this stuff. And the psychiatrist is doing this type of uh, exposure therapy on him to show him that it's not real, that it's just a dream. I'm going to show you. And then, you know, you'll be cured of this. We'll go expose you to your fear, face your fear kind of therapy. So he has this long discussion with him in the restaurant. He's like, are you ready? Are you ready to go and see the back, you know, by the dumpster from your dream? I'll be with you the whole way. Everything's going to be fine. You'll see it's not real. You better get over it. You better go home and get a good night's sleep. And of course, he goes back there and there is a homeless person back there, a homeless man, I'm assuming. And he is covered in muck and crap and probably smells foul and matted hair and all that stuff. And that is actually Bonnie Aarons in a ton of makeup, you know, to make her look like this demon. And, of course, the guy has a heart attack right there in front of his therapist because <laughs> his dream came true. So anyway, enough of that. Let's get back to the nut. I got sidetracked here. I get sidetracked pretty easily. <laughs> <laughs> but it's fun. I'm having a conversation with you guys, like I like to do. So anyway, The Nun. Okay, what I'll say about The Nun is that from a storytelling aspect, what's really wrong with The Nun, and part of the reason it's got the horrible reviews that it has, is some very, uh, I'd say, inconsistencies in the story. Uh, some Some stuff that doesn't make sense. Now, you may say, like, well, it's horror or it's fantasy and it doesn't have to make sense. Not true. Here to give you that tip right now. Not true at all. It has to make sense to the reader. And what a, where it comes into play with horror and fantasy and even sci-fi is you set up kind of rules for your world, how things work, the logic of the world. This leads to, you know, A leads to B to C to D. And you can, that logic can be whatever. It can be otherworldly like this, a demonic nun. But it has to be consistent throughout. 
if you establish a whole bunch of rules in the beginning, you don't then go and break the rules later on in your story. It jars people out of the star story is what happens. They're like, no, they just they they had to come up with something there and they're not creative enough, so they just bleh, they just they said screw the rules. So <laughs> I wouldn't say this movie is full of that. It's not the, that the whole way through. But there's a lot of incidents in there that just don't make sense with the rest of the story. Doesn't follow the logic of it of its own story. It's, it doesn't meet its own logic test. So to me, if you're doing a story about demonic possession especially there the rules need to be somewhat consistent because <laughs> they, they 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 preach to you through this whole story that the, that and part of the thing that launches the whole story is that the nun the evil nun which is not really a nun that's just how she appears to people she's actually a demon walking the earth wants to get out of this uh this abbey that she's trapped in and to do that, she needs a human vessel to possess, to get out of, you know, get far enough away from the, the gate, the opening that she slipped through. And that all gets explained. I don't want to spoil that origin story for you, uh, where she came from. But they keep telling you she needs this vessel. So much so that in the beginning of the story, in the setup of the story, the reason the priest gets called and Sister Irene and the priest gets sent there is this young nun at the convent the last one left there commits suicide rather than let the nun take possession of her and be able to escape out into the world. So they just get this report that a nun has committed suicide under, you know, extraordinary circumstances and they're going to investigate. So they're preaching this whole thing to you that she needs a vessel. She just needs a vessel. And my thinking is if you're a demon, it doesn't really matter what vessel you just need a vessel that you can possess someone that's acceptable and that you can, uh, confuse and terrorize enough to slip in and take over. But so the, the movie kind of flip flops back and forth from the, the nun looking for this vessel to get out to just flat out being a movie monster and just going to be a total badass and strangle you and kill you. <laughs> it just didn't make sense. And there's one part in there. I'll tell you this, like the graveyard scene made no sense whatsoever. And it was really jarring and just really kind of, why would the, the demon even do that? How could it do that? It just made zero sense whatsoever. It's pretty jarring. The other downside of this film is it relies pretty heavily. And this is what I was going to talk about earlier. This alarming trend in horror to rely mostly on imagery and not, story and just like with sci-fi just like with fantasy and in particular with horror if it's not about the characters if it's not about the character development if you make it about the backdrop it's going to be terrible a good example of this is zombie movies Uh, zombie movies are basically kind of a disaster movie And just like with disaster movies, if you make it the movie about the zombies, if you make the movie about the disaster, it's not going to be good. It has to be about the people. It has to be about the characters. It has to be character-driven is what I'm getting at for it to be good. And there's this really alarming trend in horror. Hopefully we'll get some good horror films pretty soon 
where it's just all about the imagery. And this movie's got tons of it. It's got the creepy old abbey in the middle of nowhere in Romania, very gothic architecture. And it's got the creepy nun. There's a lot of bad lighting, <laughs> candlelight and lanterns and stuff like that. So it's very atmospheric, but we're really lacking a lot, any type of development in the characters. The characters pretty much remain the same throughout. There's some kind of forced humor and even forced kind of semi-romance, although it's, you know, a young nun, how much romance can you get? But there's really not much development through the story. In fact, the, the most development is probably the young guy that discovered the dead nun that helps them out. And again, he's not even a main character. I'd say he's a major character. And he has probably the most development out of any of them, the most... uh qualities you can kind of identify with and he's even that's kind of it's not enough i'll say that it's not enough it's it's not that developed despite him being the most developed that being said uh i would as said i gave predator the predator an above average rating i would give this one a below average about a four let's get exact again 4.12 how about that it's got a lot of jump scares, not a lot of story. I'll give it some points for the the atmosphere, the setting, but that's about all there is here. A good sign to me that I'm really not getting into a film or a story is that at some point towards the end, it was probably like 20 minutes left in the movie. I start checking my phone, like "Mm, how much time do I have left that I got to sit through this? Let's wrap this up. <laughs> That's when when I start thinking like that in a theater, I know it's over. Like I'm done. This is not a good film. It's, <laughs> but I see it through to the end just so I can talk about it. You know me, the captain of the ship. I'm gonna make sacrifices for you guys. <laughs> so hard, so hard being the captain. <laughs> so enough of that one too. That one's oh god. I hope I have some good stuff to talk about. Uh, for next week with you guys, some good movies, some, you know, some really, I mean, Predator wasn't bad, but I hope I got some, some really good go out and watch this type of reviews for you next week. Uh, fantasy section. I want to talk about a book. I just finished reading. You might be familiar with the TV show, but I just finished reading the magicians by Lev Grossman. The, the sci- I think it was on sci-fi network. They based a TV show out of it. Uh, the book was published in 2009. And there's been, it's part of a trilogy. I'm just starting reading the second book now. But the first book is called The Magicians. And uh, if you're familiar with the show, you're at least familiar with some of the characters. And maybe some of the plots, but I'll give you the, tell you this. The, the book is very different than the show. Very different. There's a lot of characters in it that are... Uh, they're major characters on the show, and in the book, they're kind of minor characters, like the Penny character. The Penny character has almost nothing to do with the entire story of the book, except in the 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 very beginning and near the end, he kind of pops back up and becomes a kind of important part again. But a lot of those plots with Penny and his girlfriend, like you see in the show, not in the book at all. In fact, his girlfriend doesn't exist in the book at all. <laughs> that whole drama, that... uh the hedge witch that Julia goes, the Miranda, the evil queen of the hedge witches or whatever that she spends time with, none of that in the book. Julia, just like Penny, is kind of in the beginning of the book, 
And she pops up again at the end. She did go get some hedge witch training and has become pretty adept at it. But you don't see all the stuff in, in the middle. This, the, the book mainly focuses on Quentin. Uh, somewhat on Elliot and Janet. But mostly it's all about Quentin. Quentin Coldwater, the main character. If you watch the show, I was watching the show and my wife started watching it with me. I wanted to see how different it was from the book. And we're kind of watching it together. And at some point she goes to me, I don't like that character. And I'm like, who? Uh, Quentin. He's such a weenie. <laughs> and it's true. In the show, Quentin is kind of a whiny weenie. And in the book, I'd say he's a better character. He's not a weenie. He's not whiny. In fact, he's pretty decisive in the book. That being said, he is a miserable person. And we'll go into that some more. But Quentin is <laughs> Quentin is complex. He's decisive, but just just overall a miserable kind of person. So Quentin in the book is kind of like the, the the only thing that's very similar to the show is kind of the beginning. Quentin's this guy who is very dissatisfied with his life. He's just a normal guy. He knows some simple magic tricks, like, you know, not real magic, but like coin tricks and card tricks and that kind of thing. And he's obsessed with these books that were written back in the, in the, the 1930s or whatever called Fillory and Further by this guy named Christopher Plover. And, this this uh this story is very Narnia esque. It talks about these uh these Chatwin children that are a neighbor of Christopher Plover. They're real children, but he made these stories about them where they walk through this instead of through a closet, through a wardrobe like in Narnia, they walk through this giant grandfather clock and they end up in this magical world of fillery. So Quentin's obsessed with these books. He always wished he could be part of them like escape the dreariness of real life and go to Fillory and experience magic and, and wonder and all this stuff. And instead he's got this humdrum kind of yeah, drab, dreary sort of life that he wants to escape from. So <laughs> I'm always looking for themes in these stories. What is the kind of the, the, the point of this story? What is the author trying to tell me or what feelings is he trying to convey? You know, the overall theme and and the best writers do it without beating you over the head with. And Lev Grossman, I think, does that pretty well in this book. And to me, the overall story of the magicians, and I don't know, you know, what the story is. I'm just starting on the second book now. But as far as the first book, The Magicians, it's about contentment or the lack of it and how Maybe you can't choose to just be happy, but you sure as hell can choose to be miserable. So Quentin is one of these kind of people that's never content, never happy. Like I said, he hates this humdrum life. He wants to be more like the, the life in the books, the fantasy books. And then he keeps getting handed all these sort of miracles. He gets finds out that magic is real. He finds out that he can perform it really well. He's one of the 1% of 1% of people that in the world that can actually perform real magic. He gets selected to attend this elite school for magic called Breakbills. And he's still not happy. He's miserable there. 
eventually he finds out that Fillory is real and that he can go there. And he goes there and gets to participate in these adventures and he's still not happy. He's one of these people that's just always waiting for the next thing. Like, maybe if I get this, maybe if I just get this now, then I'll be happy. And then he gets it and he's still not happy. He gets the uh, the girlfriend, Alice. You know, they're like, I forget this, this cute girlfriend who's also really good at magic. Then maybe I'll be happy. And he's still not happy. In fact, he kind of sabotages it. He ruins it. He continually makes these uh, bad decisions, not just in action, but in just the way he sees things and reacts to things and the way he feels about things. He makes these terrible decisions that make him unhappy. It's kind of like the saying I have, unhappy people do things that make them unhappy. <laughs> and Quentin is very much that, never satisfied. He ends up uh, having to make some pretty uh, difficult choices in the course of the story, none of which <laughs> are, are, are destined to make him happy. So it's it, uh, that's the point I took from the story. If you're just constantly waiting for the next thing to make you happy, you're going to be miserable your whole life. Uh, being being happy is sometimes just t- taking a look at what you have and being content with it. And, I mean, it's okay to strive for more, but it, it can get to a point where it's toxic. But anyway, I, I know a lot of people were kind of down on this book. I really liked it. And honestly, I... Originally, I watched the show when it first started playing on sci-fi, and I really liked the show. But now that I've read the book, I find I have trouble enjoying the show. They've taken a pretty deep, involved book, and they've kind of buffyized it or supernaturalized it, kind of turned it into this uh, weekly, you know, what's the adventure this week, Chuck? It's <laughs> they, they, they kind of... Uh, Watered it down, made it a little more palatable because the book itself is pretty grim and depressing. The idea that, you know, this person can't just doesn't have the ability to be happy or content. But uh, I will say this, that eventually by the end of the book, he he does learn. He does finally learn at at great cost to him, at great personal cost to him and his friends. He finally does, in the end, sort of get it. I've just read the first chapter of, of, of book two, The Magician's King, I think it's called. Yeah. And uh, I want to see if Quentin continues to learn and develop, because that's the important thing in a series. If you're going to continue a series with the same characters or the same setting, the, the struggle in the second book and the third book and the character has to be, they have to have changed since the first book. Something significant had to change. And then you have a new starting point for them. You know, how they've, what they've become by the end of the first book. It's now what they are in the second book. And then by the, by the, at the beginning of the second book. And then by the end of the second book, he will have changed again. Or the other characters will have changed again. So it has to be a different struggle, a different story. Or people will get bored with it. You can't just keep repeating the Quentin will never be happy thing. So I'm still kind of waiting to discover what Quentin's deal is in the second book how he's going to develop further as a character. Uh, so I guess when I finish reading that one, I'll, I'll talk about that one too. But it's a good book. I'd recommend it. Although I will say it's one of these books. Uh, I read the, uh, the the Kindle edition version of it. 
It's just one of those books that's, you know, put out by a major publisher. I think it's Penguin. And they do not give get discounts for buying the ebook version of it. You pretty much pay like print book price. So whichever you prefer in this case, just go ahead and get it because it's not going to be significantly cheaper for the ebook version. If you prefer print, go ahead and do that because you're not going to get any savings. <laughs> so I guess I'm I'm done with that for now. And we're yeah, running up on time here. But Writing tip. I actually have a writing tip for you guys today. And this writing tip is based on my own biggest hurdle in writing that I have to struggle with constantly. I'm hoping one day I'll finally beat it and uh, be able to really produce something uh, publishable for you guys to finally read. I know I've been talking about my writing forever. And the biggest problem I have, and there's tons of other writers that have this problem. I know I've seen all the videos. I've I heard all the other authors talking about it. It's self-editing. I'm one of these writers that will, I'll start a book and I'll write, say, the first three chapters. And I will have trouble moving on to chapter four because I'll start thinking like, oh, this would be so much better if I went rewrote this part of chapter one. Or if I made the character do this instead in chapter one. Or if I got him to phrase it slightly differently in chapter two. And I end up going back and doing a lot of editing and grammar correcting and checking and all that stuff. And it really hampers my forward progress. And I know I've heard all this, the, the preaching, believe me, I've, I've listened to them all, the advice people. And they're all like, just get that first draft down. It doesn't have to be perfect. You go back in editing phase and that's when you clean it up and make it perfect. And I've had a, I've just just something I've struggled with. I want to I want to make every word, every sentence, every paragraph perfect and resonate. I just have to really learn to push forward and worry about it after writing, doing the editing process. But I am doing some things, and that's what my tips are today. I am doing some things to try and beat this sort of instinct that I have when I'm writing. And part of that is the software I'm using. I've switched almost exclusively from, at least during the first draft process for now, uh, to writing in Scrivener instead of Word. A lot of people bash uh, Scrivener for a lack of uh, good grammar or spell checking. But for me, it's actually a pro instead of a con. It lets me zip through and not kind of worry about it. Like, oh, what what did Word flag this time? And I know you can turn some of that off in Word, but I just find the whole thing kind of distracting. And then you start worrying about, like, what if, what if I'm missing something? I turn that feature off in Word. And Scrivener just kind of keeps you focused on just the writing. And believe me, it's like any other software. It's got its, you know, distractions. Although I'd say it has significantly less in that department than than, than Word, giving you the squiggly lines on your writing, kind of like a, a writing uh, teacher giving you back your red marks instantly and telling you to correct it right on the spot. <laughs> it's like kind of like the, the writing version of a piano teacher with a ruler smacking you, wah, smacking your wrist, wah, or smacking your fingers when you miss the note of the timing. Wah, that's Word. That's Word for me. <laughs> <laughs> so I switched over almost exclusively to Scrivener. It's also one of the reasons I'm very much considering getting a Mac and switching over to Mac because I have the Windows version of Scrivener. And while it's good, they're just, <clears throat> it's just disappointing to me that kind of last year they came out with Scrivener 3 for the Mac 
back in November. And the company then kind of made a promise to the Windows users, like, we're finally going to, you know, within a couple months, we're going to have the Windows Scrivener 3 out. And then from then on, we're going to keep up and it's going to stay on the same pace with Scrivener for Mac. And they just have not delivered on their promise. And when you go visit the forums and anybody complains about it, they're like, kind of like I talked about the sci-fi creators, they don't owe you anything. They're just a little software company. And like, well, the thing is they promised something. And that's like, if they hadn't promised that, I probably wouldn't even say anything or bring it up. But they were like, yeah, within a couple months. And then we'll just stay up to date forever with the Mac version. And well, now here it is, September. (laughs) From November to September, still no Scrivener 3 for Windows. And I've been using Scrivener for iOS, and even that's better than the the Windows version. So I'm just really about to break down and get a Mac, not just for Scrivener, but for some other software like Vellum. And uh, I'll, I'll probably talk about Vellum another day, which is another software I'm very interested in. That's Mac only. It, it just seems like the more I get into this uh, production-type work, audio and video, and even writing and I've even kind of been trying my hand at script writing lately. It seems like a lot of the software is just geared towards Mac. They're being developed for Mac only, or or the Windows version is just not as good. So uh, I might be switching over to the dark side <laughs> pretty soon. I'm just kind of waiting because I know that they're supposed to come out with some new, supposedly they're supposed to come out with some new iMacs this year. And I would hate to buy one now. And then come October, I can get a much better one for the same price, basically, because they're just, you know, new release. That's how Apple does it. So um, I guess I'm for the first time experiencing the uh, the frustration uh, that Mac fans feel every year with their kind of secrecy and not telling you when they're coming out with what or what, you know, when it's coming or what's coming. They're very secretive until release date. And I understand it's, it's a business thing. They want to sell the stock you know, what's already in stock before they release something new. So they're not going to tell you like, hey, you're about to come out something better next week, so don't buy shit. But everybody kind of knows anyway, at least people kind of in the know. Thankfully, I have a a buddy of mine at work that's very Mac and uh, Apple savvy that's kind of guided me on that. (laughs) So I didn't go buy the current iMac only to find out a much better one comes out next week. So I'll update you guys on that if I make the switch to the dark side. (laughs) I will see. I will definitely let y'all know. I may even make a video, a Facebook Live video of that, of me unboxing my Mac and going, look at me, I'm switching to the dark side. So (laughs) anyway, I guess that's about it for this week. I try to make these episodes about an hour or so. Uh, Although we'll see. I'm thinking about starting to do some kind of little shorter to midweek episodes but first, let's, I want to get regular weekly episodes again. Then maybe I'll start working on that. So next week, I'm probably going to be going to see, I think, the house with a clock in its walls getting released on Friday. So I'll probably go see that and talk about that. I'm not sure about the other categories yet, but you know me, I'll come up with something. So definitely the house with a clock in its walls. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's based on a children's book. They got the trailers for it all over the theaters right now. But it was a children's book written by John Belairs, I think his name is pronounced. And it was illustrated by the very famous Edward Gorey. 
which uh, if you're not familiar with, Ed, Edward Goring does these very sort of uh, creepy sort of illustrations. And I think this children's book, while it was a children's book, was kind of a scary book. And you kind of get that vibe off the trailer. It's like it's, yeah, it looks fun and magical and adventure and stuff, but there seems to also be sort of a scary element to it. So <laughs> kind of looking forward to see what they're going to do with that. And of course, got uh, Jack Black and the very lovely Miss Kate Blanchett, who I love. And uh, it's kind of unusual to me. It's directed by Eli Roth. I just found that out today. Uh, Eli Roth, you know, does kind of those. <laughs> well, you're familiar with Eli Roth, the kind of films he does. It seems funny to me that he would be doing this film. But uh, he's a talented guy, talented writer. Uh, so I guess he can do probably just about anything. I actually. <laughs> listened to an interview with Eli Roth a while back and it was kind of encouraging because he's apparently kind of a person like me in the creative process and always thought like, oh, being scattered like this, I'm never getting anything done. But it sounds like he's got a similar process to me and look how prolific he is. So give some some hope to me. <laughs> anyway, and you guys can check me out all the usual places, orbitalzombiedragon.com. Check out the Orbital Zombie Dragon Facebook page. Like I said, eventually I'll be switching over to do the live videos there. But I guess for now, it's time for us to drop out of low Earth orbit and back into light speed. Let's go on another galactic adventure. We'll be back in one week. Dragana, take us out. <laughs> <laughs>